Lord Jesus, we can do nothing apart from you if you do not impart your life to us, even by your word now, if you do not grant us spiritual vitality, we will surely wither and die. And yet, we know your precious promises to us, that you will sustain us, and even that the life that we have in you will go on into eternity. So now, this morning, would you do what you have already begun to do? Would you grant us your life so that we might bear fruit in our own lives? We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Well-known words from a missionary named C.T. Studd. He originally was a missionary to China, encountered hard ground there, eventually was redirected to Africa. He believed with all his heart that anything done aside from the empowering and purpose of Christ in his life was worthless. He gave away a fortune. He devoted his family and everything he had to this one goal. And as a result, that he bore much fruit. To this day, there's still a missionary organization called the World Evangelism Crusade that was started by him. Um, you could still go and find the results of his missionary endeavors. I'm sure many of you have heard that saying from C.T. Studd. My question for you this morning is, do you actually believe it's true? I know many evangelicals in our country today that functionally, at least, don't believe it's true. I remember having a conversation recently with a young person who had grown up in the church. They asked me why it was important for them to live a quote-unquote Christian life if you were saved by faith in Christ, not by your works? What's the point in doing anything? Why can't I just live for myself now? Whether we have put it in such stark terms or not, that is a question I think many of us wrestle with. What is the point of our obedience to Christ? What is the point of doing things on behalf of Christ? If, if it's not to get us into heaven, what, what is the point? Well, this morning, I, I hope to show you that C.T. Studd was right in what he said. He didn't just make up a really good saying we keep repeating. He actually was saying basically the same thing that Jesus says in John 15. If you look down in verse 16, I take this as something of the summary statement of the whole passage. Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In this passage, Jesus shows us that a, a life connected to Christ will have visible results in the way it is lived. Or to say it more succinctly, the life you have is revealed by the life you live. We'll see this through an extended metaphor that Jesus gives, a well-known metaphor of vine and branches and fruit. We'll examine this metaphor and his explanation for it, and we will see that the life you have is revealed by the life you live. Let's begin in verse 1 by looking at 
the life flowing from the true vine. The life flowing from the true vine. Now, the verse immediately before this, back in 1431, there's a little bit of a question of where Jesus and his disciples are. The last words in that chapter are, rise, let us go from here. At this point, Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. It's the final day he has with them. His hours on this earth are counting down. And there's a a bit of an interpretive question. Where is it that Jesus and his disciples are in chapter 15 all the way to chapter 18? Because Jesus seems to say they're leaving, but he doesn't tell us where, John never tells us where it is they go until we get into chapter 18 and he crosses over a river and ends up in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some commentators think this means that everything that's happening in these next three chapters is Jesus' disciples walking through the streets of Jerusalem. That may be. Um, I tend to think it's more of a mark of authenticity, something that would have been said in a culture in Jesus' day, a little bit like something that happens in Hispanic culture. So I grew up in a mostly uh, Latino culture, and uh, very often when you're having a gathering or a party, if someone says, okay, I'm going to go now, see you guys, that is actually the signal that they will be leaving in 30 to 60 minutes. It begins a new round of conversations and hugs and kisses that will maybe move step by step closer and closer to the door, but they won't be gone for at least another half an hour. Uh, I think if I were a betting man that John remembers this moment of the conversation with Jesus, because this signals the beginning of the end. This is the, the last stage of their time together. It's as if time is lengthening. The next three chapters take place in a very short period of time, and they make the significance of what Jesus says even stronger. And what he says is frankly shocking. The fact that we are so familiar with the metaphor of the the vine and the branches and the fruit that are born, it actually plays defense against us feeling the shock of what Jesus says. Right there in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. If we were uh, sitting in the seats in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, we would have had brought to mind a whole host of different images and associations. One certainly would have been in the temple. We have uh, records of the fact that there was ornamentation in the temple of a lush ornamented vine. It was made of gold and precious jewels. And if you were rich, you would go and show your piety by adding another branch or another ruby to be another berry on this vine. It showed the beauty of God's temple, and it brought to mind this image of a vine, because God's word associated the vine with God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament. If you go back through your Old Testament, you'll find it all over. I'll just point you to two examples that establish it pretty firmly. Isaiah chapter 5, we'll only look at verse 7. Isaiah 5 and verse 7, God speaks of his people Israel as a vineyard that he is cultivating. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. But then look at the disappointment here. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 
associated with this image again and again for God's people is that God cultivates them. He plants them and he expects them to produce a type of fruit. And instead, they go off after idols. They produce sin. They rebel against God and his plant that he has so carefully cultivated goes wild. Well, that thread runs through the Bible. I, I, I think it comes to a head at Psalm 80. In Psalm 80, the vine image is brought together with another image, that of someone that will come and that will have the fruitfulness that God's people Israel have lacked. Psalm 80, verses 14 through 18, says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your hand planted, and catch this, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. You catch that, how this thread of the vine of God's people comes together with this son of man that will uniquely have the blessing of God's life flowing in him to bring the fruitfulness God has always been after in his people. There is this expectation coming of a day when God's vine will bear fruit through a particular son of man. And then in John 15, Jesus comes and he says, I am the true vine. This is the last of Jesus's great I am statements in John's gospel, and it is no less shocking than all the others that have come before it. Jesus here is not doing away with the Old Testament scriptures or the Old Testament people of God. He is claiming to be the fulfillment of them. He's saying where God's people, Israel, have failed again and again to bear the sort of fruit befitting of my heavenly father. I am here to bear that fruit. I will accomplish my father's will where they failed. Jesus and Jesus alone is the true vine. But that leads a pretty important question. How is it that Jesus succeeds where they fails? How is it that he bears this fruit? And this is the second shocking thing in the passage. He does this through us. That's what we see in verses 2 through 8. The second large uh, portion of the metaphor, not only do we see the life flowing from the true vine Jesus, we see it that life seen flowing into living branches. Or as we might use language today, we see his life changing the lives of Christians. The metaphor extends all the way from verse 1 to verse 8. In verse 2, he starts describing his father's work as the vine dresser. That's a, the person tending the, the, this vine plant. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus, in verse 2, is describing the, the father's careful care for this plant the branches coming from this vine. Uh, in modern terms, we call this the work of a viticulturist. 
someone who tends to a vine, maybe someone that's tending a grapevine. I was reading online about it in, in some books. There's all sorts of different cuts that a viticulturist will do to produce the greatest quantity and quality of grapes. Some cuts will be what's called a, a tip. Others will be what's called a top. Others are referred to as a prune. Sometimes it's cutting off a section that the viticulturist knows will never bear fruit and it's only going to be a drag on the whole plant and so it's lopped off and taken a whole section away. Other times it's a section that looks promising but with a very careful type of snip, it actually causes the plant to heal and to grow even more quickly and bear even greater fruit. There's other cuts that are done to make sure the, the, uh, the vine doesn't grow too quickly so that it doesn't become unstable and actually collapse in on itself. Now, I don't know how much of this Jesus intends for us to import into this passage. What's clear is he's driving home the Father's role in cultivating the Christian to bear fruit. That the Father does a work of cutting away, of pruning, even of wounding, all for the purpose of making even more fruitful the life of a Christian. But notice there's also a flip side to that. There are some that are not cut for the sake of being, uh, to encourage growth. Some, he says that they're actually taken away. That there is a contrast between the living branch that's cut to produce more and the branch that's dead that's cut to be taken away from the vine entirely. And what's the difference between the two? Well, we see that coming out in verses 5 through 8. That every healthy branch, I'm sorry, verse 4, uh, that it's remaining connected to the sun, remaining connected to the source of life. In verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says the difference between the branch that is taken away and the branch that remains healthy and even bears lots of fruit, the difference is remaining. He uses that word abide. It's just a, a word for remain. Jesus is claiming here to be the very source of life that keeps a branch healthy and productive. And if that source of life is severed from the branch, well, that branch is useful for nothing more than kindling. That's what we were told in verse 5. He makes another pass at the metaphor. This time he's taking away the father's role in this and focusing on the production of the, the branch. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So Jesus here is doing two things. He is both telling us the source of all fruitfulness in a Christian's life. The source of any change that we might see as Christians is Christ at work in us through this connection we have with him as believers. And at the same time, he is warning, warning that there are some that appear to be Christians, some that seem to have a, a level of connection to Christ, and yet there is no life within them. There will not be any fruitfulness. And one day it will become obvious that they were never true Christians 
because the father will prune them from the, the plant. He will cut them away and they will be taken away to judgment. Now that's a heavy word. It's a heavy word for us to hear, but and yet realize why it's so important. The church is never far away from the ditch of nominalism. It's so easy to have a crust of Christianity without the substance underneath. Uh, it wasn't long ago when I was in a, uh, a short-term trip to Jamaica, and one of the interesting things about Jamaica is it's overwhelmingly Protestant Christians. Last, uh, last I checked, there was over 90% of people would identify with what we would say would be uh, evangelical Christianity. And yet, if you talk to people doing ministry in Jamaica, they will tell you that the vast majority of people that identify as Christians have no discernible change to their lives. They would be nominal Christians. Many of them have very thin understandings of the gospel, but even those who have some understanding, many of them see no reason to live in what we would call a consistent Christian pattern. See, there's a very big difference between someone whose life bears the marks of a lasting relationship to Jesus and someone who has some sort of surface allegiance to Jesus, but no fruit in their life. Jesus tells us in verse 8, the whole point of this exercise is to be able to tell the difference between a genuine Christian and a false one. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. See the two things that are accomplished here by bearing fruit? One, the thing that the Father was after from the very beginning by planting this vine he would be glorified as people see the changed lives of his people and they say, their, their God must be amazing. And second, that we would have assurance. Even as we are in seasons of doubt, even as we have questions of why it is that God feels far from us, if we see the evidence of Christ changing our lives, that we would say we truly must be his disciples. Now, up till now, I've been speaking in rather abstract terms because Jesus has been using this metaphor. And if we left it here, I, I, I have to say it would be very easy to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. That you could fill in a lot of blanks and end up in some dangerous territory. So I hope you are asking the question, well, what does this fruit actually look like? How would this actually play out in a particular person's life? Let's get rid of some of the ambiguity by actually getting down to where we live in real life. Well, that's what we get to in the third section, verses 9 through 17. What this actually means in real life, we're going to look at the life producing this sweet fruit in verses 9 through 17. This section serves as Jesus' explanation of the metaphor he just laid out. He gets down and he tells us that it will be the life of a Christian will bear these marks of fruit in two areas. Two areas. First, you'll see change in the believer's heart towards God. That's in verses 9 through 11. Change in the believer's heart towards God. And second, you'll see change in the believer's heart toward other Christians in verses 12 through 17. Now, as Jesus unpacks the metaphor, there is room here for it to go beyond those two categories. I do think it's right to say that 
the fruit that Jesus is talking about is really anything that's done by Christ and for Christ in a Christian's life. So certainly anything like the fruit of the Spirit or any evangelism that's done. But the, the two focal points here are our attitude, our heart's disposition toward Jesus, and then our love toward other Christians. So first, let's look at our heart's inclination toward him in verses 9 through 11. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I know this is a thick passage, and so your, your brain tends to just kind of skip when it feels like it's read the same thing earlier, but slow down and hear what Jesus just said. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Brothers and sisters, is there ever a time where you feel as if God is distant from you? Where your heart feels cold? Where you wonder, does he, does he really love me? Do you see what Jesus is saying in this verse? You can actually go back to the love that the Father has toward the Son. Think of all the things that the Father delights in the Son in. His perfect obedience, his joy at doing his will, his devotion in prayer, the many times that he is used as the very hand of God to show his presence among his people, all of the wonders of Christ on this world. Think how delighted the Father is in the Son. And Jesus dares to say, in the same way that the Father loves me, I love you. This is not a begrudging love. This is not an oops, I made a promise, I have to keep it sort of love. This is the highest heights of love imaginable. The very love from the Father to the Son in all eternity, now from the Son to us. The Son delighting in what he is doing in us and the forever relationship that he has brought to us. It goes on in verse 10. He tells us how it is that we can keep that loving relationship going. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, it's possible, as with last week, to read that condition there, if you keep my commandments, in a oppressive, sort of spiritual guilt trip sort of way. But it's very helpful to realize the way Jesus pins this down. He uses the analogy of his own obedience to the Father as our obedience to him. There's nothing begrudging or cold about the way Jesus obeys the Father. It's his delight. It's his heart's song. He obeys the Father because there's nothing more joyful for him to do than to obey his Father in all things. And he tells us if we want to continue experiencing this amazing love from him, then we will continue obeying his commandments. Now, certainly the commandments of Jesus are many, and they can be weighty, weighty beyond what our souls can bear. He commands us to love other Christians. That's hard. He commands us to police not just our actions, but our hearts and our minds and our thought life. He tells us the standard is perfect perfection, which is why I'm so thankful that he tells us why he gives us this command in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you see the sweetness of the fruit in your life of obeying Jesus? It's not the cold, grin and bear it sort of attitude that sometimes we Christians put on. No, if we rightly understand what it is that we are being asked to do, obeying Jesus is the most pleasurable thing there is in this world and the world to come. It puts us right at the center of the love of the Father and the Son. And even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment, our joy will be increased like nothing else in this world can provide. There is a sweetness to our relationship toward Christ if we are connected to Christ. And let me just pause here and say, brother or sister, if you're here this morning and you feel like you are in an especially dry spiritual season, it may be because you have been neglecting the commands Jesus has given you to stoke the flames of love in your heart toward him. When was the last time that you found yourself praying and not counting down the minutes till your time praying was up? When was the last time that you read your Bible and felt like you didn't want to do anything else except spend time in God's word? Now, that's not our experience all the time, but if it's never our experience to desire the, the word of Christ to conform us and his pray, praying to Christ to have fellowship with him, then, friends, our hearts will grow cold. And if it's never the case that you feel those things, you might ask yourself, have I been neglecting the things that God has desired that bring Christ's life into my life? Coming up, we're going to have a season of seeking the Lord together through a week of prayer and fasting. Uh, all of you should have gotten one of these in your bulletins. Uh, it's, spiritual vitality is such an important thing for a church. Uh, we're going to spend five nights together reminding ourselves that everything we have is dependent on Jesus' life in us. Even as we are hungry and our bodies feel weak, even as we are spending time in prayer, seemingly in inaction, we are, we're showing our need for Jesus to provide that life to us. And we're going to do that together. Make time on this calendar, uh, on your calendar for this, if you feel spiritually dry. Well, we saw the, the first aspect of the way that the fruit is born in our lives is that it changes our heart toward him. It gives us a heart for joyful obedience. The second way and this is the principal way that Jesus is driving to, is it changes our hearts toward other believers. You can see this in verses 12 and 17. It brackets this whole section. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Then down in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. In between those two brackets, Jesus gives us a series of motivations and explanations for how it is that we go about continuing to love each other when it gets hard. But his main thrust is that if you are connected to the life-giving branch of Jesus, it will be seen in the fruit of you loving other Christians. He, he tells us, verse in verse 13, the, the, way, uh, the type of love this is, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
this is Jesus establishing that the standard for Christian love is the measuring stick of the cross. Our Savior did not just love us with warm feelings and thoughts. He didn't just love us with some platitudes. He didn't even just love us with a, a warm hug. He loved us by dealing with our greatest of all needs, our guilt before a holy God. Jesus loved us to the point of giving up his own life on the cross so that we would no longer be called God's enemies. With our guilty consciences cleansed, with our sins atoned for, we would now be called friends of God. And that now becomes the basis for why we love each other. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please understand that the reason why we Christians have this sort of special relationship with each other, it's not meant to intentionally exclude anyone as if we are better than anyone else. We just understand this work that Jesus did for us uh, to die on the cross for our sins, to be the greatest, most defining moment that anyone could ever have. There's nothing more true of you than where you stand before God. We would love nothing more than for you to have this relationship with God also, to find the forgiveness of your sins by coming to God through Jesus. If you don't know how to do that, come talk with me after the service. I would love to explain how you too can experience this sacrificial love that would pay for your sins. But for those of us who are Christians, let's realize this means there is no limit to the amount of love that we are to show toward each other. The greatest expression of love is our standard, and we are to love each other with the love Christ has shown for us. Second, we see the motivation for loving each other is friendship. In verses 14 through 15, he tells us, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Jesus goes to the fact that he has revealed something about God and his purposes as he's revealed himself. And in so doing, he has made his disciples into friends of God. That is a privilege, a privilege that should motivate us toward sacrificial love toward each other. The third reason that we are to continue having Christians love toward each other, verse 16, is the privilege of our co-calling as messengers in verse 16, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask in the Father's name, he may give it to you. Now there's a shade of mission in that verse. It's not just that you bear fruit, it's that you go and bear fruit, lasting fruit. But the emphasis, again, is on this, the fact that the disciples have this mission together, that they are going to bear fruit in community that is reaching the world for Christ. So all of this, then, is a call to the sweetness of Christian love for each other. And where best is that seen except in the body of the church? We sing that song, Oh, How Good It Is When the Family of God dwells together in spirit and faith and unity. And I hope you know it is a good, good thing to be in relationship with your brothers and sisters, to be able to show the love of Christ the same way you've experienced it yourself. 
I'm so encouraged, by the way, you as a church show this love of Christ in our church body. I mean, from the day I arrived a little under two years ago, you have showed it to me as your pastor. From the group of men that showed up to help unload the truck so Precious and I, with a newborn in tow, could move in and not die in the process. (laughs) To the way that you treat the rest of our staff. I mean, I know we're a young staff, and yet you never hold it over our heads. You make it easy to serve you and to do the ministry the Lord's called us to. Even the, our elders, you, you make it easy for them to do the job of shepherding the Lord has called them to by honoring them and by listening to their counsel. I think of the way that you rally around each other when one of us is hurting, the way I've seen you provide meals when someone's grieving, the way I see people sit down next to each other and give a a hug when someone's having a really rough week, the way I know that you are tireless in praying for each other, that's a mark of the love of Christ in us. That's the, the fruit of the life of Jesus hanging off of our church body. Now, I don't want you to be discouraged. Not all types of fruit are found in every season of life. You know, sometimes Christians grow discouraged because they see fruit, other fruitful Christians and they think if I'm not bearing that particular type of fruit, there must be something wrong. Jesus never says that here. Even as I use the example of C.T. Studd and the great missions victory for Christ, realize that there are certain seasons that have particular types of fruits that come with them. If you're here this morning and you are a teenager or a student, you may fall into the trap of thinking, well, I should get serious about my faith when I'm in my 20s or when I'm married or when I get old like my parents. And yet you know that God particularly uses our energy and zeal as young disciples in a way that we just don't see commonly in other stages of life. The vast majority of people that come to faith in Jesus do so before they are old like your parents. So go out and share the gospel right now. Or maybe use your energy and the, the zeal you have to prepare for a mission you ha- that Lord may send you on one day. Maybe right now is a time to stick tools in your tool belt by doing your homework so you can learn how to be efficient and effective and to maximize the gifts the Lord's given you. Or maybe you're a parent and it feels like your days of having as much relational capacity as you want are long past. And you feel like, I- I'm just not a part of the body the way I once was. Would you remember that the type of fruit that you are aiming for might be the type of fruit that takes a long time to ripen? You might be investing in the discipleship of your kids and pouring yourself into your family faithfully week after week, and you may not see those results for decades, and yet it is still a worthy endeavor. It is still part of being fruitful to Jesus to be faithful in that calling. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are on the further end of the age spectrum. Maybe some of you, I'm so encouraged that you come to church even when it's physically difficult for you to even get here. And maybe in the past you were able to serve in so many different ministries and so many different ways and it's discouraging that you can't do those things anymore. Would you remember that there is a type of fruit that you can bear in this season that no one else can at another season of life. Maybe in your physical affliction, 
God is going to show his goodness in your gentle and kind and loving spirit. You know, so, so often as people get old and life gets hard, they get grumpy and they get hard. How different it is when someone is softened by the life of Christ flowing into them year after year, decade after decade, and the fruit they bear at their end of their lives is the sweetest of all. Brothers and sisters, no matter what stage of life you are in, no matter where Christ has planted you, there is fruit for you to bear in your joyful obedience to Jesus. We saw this in the life of one of our members who died not long ago. Her name was Diane Ziegler. Diane was a wonderful sister in Christ, so joyful. She joined our church in one of those latter stages in life. She was never able to come on her own. We always had to have others help her to get here. That was a beautiful expression of love in the body. And yet she loved to be here for worship. She loved to sing. She loved to sit under the preached word. And even as the ravages of illness took away even those things from her, there was abiding, lasting fruit. Her dying wish was that her family would allow her to have a Christian funeral, which meant I had the unusual conversation of an unbelieving spouse saying, Pastor, would you please have a funeral that is exactly what my wife would have wanted? And I asked him, would you be okay with me being very clear about Jesus being the way for salvation and the need to believe in him? And he said, if that's what she wants, that's what I want you to do. The fruit of her life resulted in 40 of her family members hearing the gospel clearly one more time. I don't know what seasonal life the Lord has you in, but I know there is fruit for you to bear in connection with Christ. The life that's within you will be seen in the life that you live. I opened with the story of C.T. Studd. He did not find fruitfulness in China. He was redirected to Africa. But I recently came across another missionary by the name of James O. Frazier, in the late 1800s, he left a promising engineering uh, and uh, music career to follow the call of Christ to go bear lasting fruit in China. He uh, actually was trying to get to Tibet, but as the Lord would have it, he was unable to do so. So he had to settle for reaching a mountainous people group on the border. The Lisu people in China at that point had never heard the name of Jesus. He was the first missionary to reach them, and it would prove to be an especially fruitful place. It took six years, six years of hard work, six years of toil and discouragement, until, as one of his biographers writes, the Holy Spirit broke in on the lives of the Lisu within a short while, over 600 of them coming to Christ. As the history would unfold, we would see that this is indeed abiding fruit. More and more of the Lisu would come to Christ. Till today, 90% of that tribe is associated with faith in Christ. That works out to somewhere around 700,000 people, if you do the math. Now, numbers do not measure whether a fruit is genuine or not. 
The question for each of us is if we are connected to Jesus, do our lives reflect it? Are there any fruits of Jesus' life flowing through us toward other believers or toward the watching world? If so, brother and sister, take heart. That is Christ in you, a sure sign. You are a believer in Jesus. And if not, brother and sister, now is the time to ask, what has happened to my connection to Christ? What has happened to the love I once had? Re-examine, if you are not connected to the vine, are you truly a living branch? Jesus' life in us changes our lives in ways we can see. Let's pray.